Uh, thank you very much for um, your introduction, and thank you very much also for having invited me to give this talk this evening. Um, I'll actually start by asking the question about which you were uh, puzzled. Um, how come it is that I work within the context of the Vipassana community? Well, the, so the short answer is they're the only people who invite me to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's true. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm not invited to do that by any Tibetan groups. Uh, one Zen group, Upaya, Joan Halifax, uh, is quite keen on what I'm doing. But other than that, I work entirely within the community that is called Vipassana. I do have roots there. I was, uh, when I was just ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist novice monk, I did a 10-day Vipassana retreat with Mr. Goenka mm -hmm. in India in 1974. And that very much opened me to the whole of the early Buddhist tradition in a way that had a very, very deep impact. And I somehow maintained that practice, though not strictly according to the Goenka method, um, throughout my years as a Tibetan and a Zen monk. And so when I returned with Martin to uh, England after having disrobed, um, I naturally gravitated to that community through people I had met in India in the early <coughs> 70s, namely uh, Christopher Titmus and Christina Feldman. And so when we came back from Asia, we settled in a lay Buddhist community uh, near Gaia House in, in Devon. And that's been kind of our home ever since. So in some ways, we've been adopted by the Vipassana community, uh, which is ironic in a sense because it's the one tradition in which we haven't trained. <laughs> so it's a strange story. Okay, I'm going to talk this evening, uh, I've given it the title, uh, Towards a, a Secular Buddhism. And I'm just going to, as it were, think around that theme for about uh, 15 minutes or so, provided I can keep my digressive tendencies in check. <laughs> and I would like to leave time um, for questions, answers, comments, uh, etc. Because really, I don't know. I don't know most of you. In fact, I only know one or two people in this room. So I have no idea why you're here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Uh, so I'd very much like to hear back from you. Check the mic. Check the mic. Yeah, it's on. Oh, lift it up a bit. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, good. Can you hear me well at the back now? Okay, excellent. Um, I'm going to start with a, a quotation... Uh, in a book written by an American philosopher called Alistair McIntyre, who some of you may have know, may know about. Um, he wrote a very good book called After Virtue, which is a reflection on the condition of ethics and morality. It's a bit dense and technical. But he says it is a wonderful chapter on the nature of tradition. 
And he says in there that a living tradition is one that is in a constant conversation with its past. That's what keeps a tradition alive. Is not the preservation of something that somehow resists the influences of all the changing cultures and other environments uh, that it survives through the course of its history. A tradition that somehow keeps itself apart from the currents of change. But a living tradition is one that's in a conversation with its past, meaning that there's a constant ongoing dialogue. A dialogue between the present and all that that constitutes, and the record we have of what the Buddha taught, or depending on which tradition we happen to be part of, if we're Buddhist, then, let's say, with Dogen, or with Tsongkhapa, or with Nagarjuna, or, of course, with the Buddha himself. And this kind of relationship, I feel, is one that has been very central to my own involvement with the Dharma over the last 40 years now. It started very much with my work on a text called the Bodhicaryavatara, the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, written by the 8th century Indian uh, monk, scholar, poet, uh, Shantideva. I translated this from Tibetan. It's still in print, actually, amazingly, after, again, over 30 years or so. And in engaging with this text, um, although it started out as wanting to know what the text was saying and it was a struggle to figure out the Tibetan and to put it into English. But what was most uh, valuable about this process was the fact that over time I started to feel I was having a dialogue with the, the man who was writing or had written these words. What I particularly enjoyed about Shantideva was that unlike many Indian Buddhist writers, he doesn't shy away from speaking in the first person. Um, he talks very much of his own struggle with many of these values and teachings. He's not um, uh, at all coy about acknowledging the contradictions in his own mind. There's a confessional tone to his writing, a very personal tone. And that's been a very inspirational um, uh, experience, really, uh, in my own work. I feel Shantideva, in a sense, sort of gives me permission to speak in a, in a personal, confessional tone uh, in my own writing. And I think it's something that, in the West in particular, we, we value. Perhaps the, a good example of that would be the Confessions of St. Augustine. Augustine, which is a wonderful book, um, and it is very much his own story as to how he came to be a Christian in this case. But he tells that from within a very deep insight into his own character, into his own life, in the times he lived, which were in the, the latter period of the Ro Roman Empire. If you haven't read it, I would really, really recommend it marvellous book. And then you find people like Pascal uh, in France, Blaise Pascal, uh, Montaigne likewise, 
Um, writers who, in a sense, communicate what they uh, most deeply value in their traditions by refracting these ideas through their own personal lives and experiences. And this, I feel, is what makes a tradition come alive, at least in our world. Um, we want to somehow um, engage with the figures of the past uh, in a way that allows their voice or their voices to uh, speak uh, to the conditions of our time. In the last years, particularly since I've been back in Europe, uh, having disrobed as a monk, my attention has been primarily focused on the teachings in the Pali Canon, and I'm, I'm learning Pali, and trying to somehow attune my ear for the, the particular uh, scene or line of thinking, particular voices perhaps, with which I most strongly resonate within these earliest Buddhist texts. Now I'm not actually interested in, in trying to say, um, determine what it is the Buddha really said, said and what it was he really meant. I think that's a bit of a dead end. What I'm interested in is finding out of the plurality of voices that the Buddhist tradition offers us, those with whom I feel I can enter into a, a fruitful dialogue. And what will emerge out of that dialogue is something I can't really predict or foresee. But I feel that as the Dharma um, finds its feet uh, in a non-Buddhist culture, then one of the conditions that will perhaps allow it to emerge as a vital and a living tradition is what comes out of the dialogues that we have with the uh, source figures of the past. So it's a bit like in Hegel's philosophy where you have a thesis, an antithesis, and then a synthesis. I feel that what will emerge, as has emerged in many different instances in the past, in China, in Tibet, in, in, in Burma, in Sri Lanka, is what will emerge will be something that, are, that, that is not reducible to either party of that dialogue, but somehow transcends them both. And that, I feel, is one way at least of explaining the, the diversity and the richness of the various Buddhist traditions that we encounter today. Unfortunately, most of them have a sort of polemical or a rhetorical discourse which claims that this is the the real teaching. This is the one that goes back in an unbroken lineage to the Buddha. We want to somehow claim greater authority uh, to presumably give our tradition more kudos. But, in fact, I think if we look at this historically, we see the whole of the Buddhist tradition is a wonderful uh, example of what the Buddha called paticca samuppada, the conditioned arising. The Buddhism itself is a, a contingent, emergent process that survives and, and thrives through its ongoing interactions with different societies and different historical epochs. And this brings us very much to the idea of uh, secularization. 
a secular Dharma, a secular Buddhism, the term that's now more and more finding a certain currency. But we need, I think, to step back and ask, well, what do we mean? Well, what does secular mean? I think in the more popular language of our time, uh, secular very often is contrasted with religious. <coughs> and so you may have a, a panel discussion at a conference, and you may hear a, uh, a rabbi and a, a, a Christian priest giving a, <coughs> a particular point of view on a topic, and then the convener will invite um, someone to give a secular um, response uh, or perspective on whatever's being discussed. And so very often religious and secular are seen as somehow in opposition with the other. Now I do actually um, value that sense of the term secular. I don't think of myself really as uh, a Buddhist who is a Buddhist primarily out of my religious commitments and belonging to some religious institution and somehow feeling thereby beholden to hold certain uh, doctrines and views as pretty much non-negotiable. And I'm certainly no longer a priest or a monk or anything like that. I live in the world and I enjoy living in the world. I feel that uh, modern uh, society, particularly in the more privileged countries of Europe and America, uh, is a very um, uh, it's, a, it's a very positive experience. Um, in some ways, I feel that secularization is not the failure of religion, but in some senses, perhaps its triumph. Now, this is a point made by uh, an Italian philosopher I've been reading recently called Gianni Vattimo who argues this in the case of Christianity. And I feel perhaps we may also be at a time when the Buddha's teaching is not something which in some ways is reserved for those who can commit their lives fully to its <coughs> practice and its philosophy by becoming monks or nuns, and the lay people somehow are, in a sense, sort of second-class Buddhists. But I wonder whether that whole um, division between monk and lay, um, is really that legitimate anymore? Uh, is it actually necessary, to, as it were, to preserve um, or, or to, to, to feel that it's the monks who hold the authority of the tradition? In some, not in all schools, but in some schools, it's still very much the case. Um, I've questioned this for a long time. In fact, one of the first essays I published when I was still a monk, actually, was called Monks, Laity, and Sangha. And it was asking, nowadays, do we need to think of Sangha um, as the preserve of monastics and professionals and the laity somehow being subordinate and really their role being to support the monks and the nuns and then perhaps in a future life gaining a positive <laughs> rebirth that they too can become a monk, Pre preferably a monk, not a nun. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, that, that this whole social um, uh, reality of, of Buddhism reflects certain economic and other conditions that prevailed in Asia until quite recent times. But does that model really uh, make any sense in the kind of culture 
uh, of modernity in which we live now. So that's one side of the idea of, of the secular, that perhaps it's time in some ways, and it's already happening, it's not a question of some theory. I mean, we only have to look in this room and to look at, say, the retreat centers that have sprung up in the last 30 years. In some ways, the mainstream of Buddhism in uh, the United States, for, for certain, is predominantly lay. Uh, of course, there are monks and, and nuns and so forth, and they're afforded great respect, which I think is correct. But it's no longer really where the main thrust of the tradition seems to be going. The other meaning of the word secular, its more literal meaning, um, refers uh, to the Latin word seculum, which means this time, or this age. Uh, we get the French word siècle, uh, this century. In other words, a secular approach is an approach that is concerned with the needs um, and the demands of our time and our place. It's not concerned with, let's say, what happens after death. Um, metaphysical questions about our possible existence prior to this life, after this life whether in heaven or hell, or whether in some future rebirth, that the secular concern is a concern with how we live our lives uh, here and now in relation to the sufferings of, of our world. And this, I feel, is, um, is communicated perhaps most powerfully by some of the dominant images of our secular, of our time, of our world. That the world picture in which we live is a radically different one from the world picture within which Buddhism has traditionally uh, evolved and been practiced. I think perhaps, at least for me, uh, the world picture that has had the most impact on how I, I see myself in this world, in this universe, is that of the first photographs of this planet that was sent back from space. Uh, this would have been in the 1960s when the first satellites and the, and the, and the, the Apollo missions that sent men to the moon. For the first time, even though we knew theoretically up from the time of Copernicus, the relative positions of the Earth and the Sun and so on. It only really sort of comes home to you when you actually see your, where we are from a sufficient distance to see that that's right. That we are this beautiful blue globe um, with this fragile biosphere um, surrounding it in which life has come to flourish over the last two and a half billion years, whatever the number is, but really in the grand scheme of things, very, very, very recently. And human life, human life that is anatomically identical to our own, in other words, if we were put in the same room together, we wouldn't look any different. We might complain that some of those earlier humans had some 
personal hygiene issues. <laughs> Basically, we would be identical. And such um, organisms, human organisms, have actually only been around for 150,000 years. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just a tiny, tiny finger snap in the larger uh, history of the universe or the solar system, let alone the universe. And what has become more and more um, a part of our world picture is a sense of being um, on this uh, planet and um, existing in this vast Milky Way, this galaxy of billions of stars, only to be aware now that there are billions of galaxies with billions of stars. And as far as we know, although statistically it seems you know, to be likely that there are <coughs> life elsewhere in this universe, as far as we know, we're alone. You know, the, these creatures that have emerged on this planet in the last 150,000 years, uh, in a universe that is now dated at approximately 15 billion years, that is continuing to expand. This is an in, a very, very different world picture to that of ancient India, where the Earth is seen still as, as, as flat, <coughs> the sun and the moon go around it. It's a relatively stable, domestic sort of place, and people are spiritual beings who have incarnated um, from some other realm, <coughs> they're humans for 80 years, if they're lucky, then they go off and reincarnate somewhere else. It's a very, very, very different picture. And although Buddhism still cleaves to this picture, and many modern Buddhists too struggle to somehow hold on to elements of this picture, I feel for many of us, um, and certainly for those who don't have any particular commitment to Buddhism, that's simply not the world we live in anymore. It's not to say that that view is wrong. I think that's actually the, uh, not an, a useful way of looking at it. It's that picture doesn't work anymore. And we have another picture that inspires, I think, in many of us, some of the deepest religious feelings that we know. The sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of the sublime, a sense of infinity... Uh, a sense of fragility, of impermanence, of the, the tentative nature of our lives. And if the Dhamma is to somehow become part of that, then that's, in a way, uh, the kind of dialogue that's going to occur. A dialogue between people who inhabit such a world picture and all of the knowledge and understanding that we have of that with a tradition from... The, the Buddhist uh, uh, traditions uh, the, whose world picture is very different but and I think this is something I'm sure most of us in this room will, will recognize is that when you read some of the suttas in the Pali Canon they weirdly speak to our condition today in fact sometimes it's rather surprising um, how contemporary and modern some of the Buddha's insights were. Now we think of the Buddha as having lived an awful long time ago and we somehow uh, consider Buddhism to be a tradition of great antiquity. But I think that's not perhaps so helpful 
Um, just a little, another way of looking at the, at the ancientness of Buddhism. Uh, imagine a, a sequence of human lives. The Buddha lived for 80 years. Let's imagine a person was born on the day of the Buddha's death, and he lived or she lived for 80 years. And then another person was born on the day of their death and lived for 80 years. From the death of the Buddha until today, that would only be 30 lifetimes. 30 human lives stretched end to end. It's not many, really. And of those of us of a certain age, <laughs> we know that you know, that's not, you know, it really is rather a short time. <laughs> Children have this wonderful illusion that, you know, ten years hence is almost impossibly distant. <laughs> but um, <laughs> unfortunately, as you get older, you realise that's not true. So, in some senses, I don't. I wonder, in a way, that um, it's 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 misleading to think of the Buddha as being of a very different time. I don't think so. Um, I do feel, and I would as a Buddhist, wouldn't I? That uh, the Buddha, um, I feel, was, is the greatest genius that's ever lived on this earth. And that doesn't mean that other figures of other traditions are also not geniuses and brilliant and awakened, whatever that means. But I feel for myself that um, my life has been very deeply enriched and made sense of and given shape and form and purpose and direction and depth through my dialogue with the Buddhist traditions that I've been part of. So just, um, just a few quick points uh, at this uh, juncture. Um, I think there are three elements of the ancient Buddhist world picture, which is really the ancient cosmology of India that predated the Buddha and that was also actually part of the ancient world in Greece and uh, Persia as well. There are three things that we can perhaps uh, let go of. One is the idea of reincarnation or rebirth. This is something I find, uh, I just cannot make any sense out of it. Um, it's not something I want to sort of refute and deny. Uh, it may be the case, I don't know. But I, it's unintelligible to me given how we currently understand the evolution of the human being, how we currently understand uh, the nature, the highly complex <coughs> nature of the human brain, and how consciousness emerges out of the interaction <coughs> between uh, the organism and its environment, um, which is a view um, not only found in modern neuroscience, but a view weirdly similar to that the Buddha himself taught in the earliest texts. As soon as you think of rebirth or reincarnation, you have, unfortunately, to adopt a body-mind dualism. You have to posit some non-material stuff, which you call mind consciousness, bhavanga cheetah, if you want to dress it up in Pali, <laughs> something that is able to sort of uh, avoid physical death and sneak off into someone else's womb. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't, I just cannot understand what that means. It that, that way of thinking doesn't help anymore. Another uh, way of looking at the world, I think, 
doesn't work anymore, but which is very much part of uh, a Buddhist tradition, is the idea that reality is somehow uh, divided into some sort of absolute or ultimate truth or reality, and which is somehow in, in opposition in some sense to conventional relative truths. It's the doctrine of the two truths, and that enlightenment is somehow seen as gaining some privileged experiential insight into the ultimate nature of things. Um, that, I think, is a reflex, again, of ancient Indian uh, thinking, um, classically embodied in the idea of Brahman, or God, the undifferentiated, the unitary source and ground of all things, and uh, Maya, the illusory world of appearances and multiplicity and complexity um, that somehow deceives us and tricks us and we need to detach ourselves from that and get back to the primary unity of our true divine nature. Now of course Buddhism doesn't speak in that language but it has I feel especially over its development in India uh, slipped back into that kind of language and it's with us in all the Buddhist traditions. Paramata Satcha and Samuti Satcha, ultimate truth, relative truth. What is weird, or maybe not so weird, but what is the case, is that these terms are not found in the Pali Canon at all. And then there's nowhere are they mentioned in the suttas or the Vinaya. Uh, it's, and it's not that the terms are not used, but that whole way of thinking is alien to what the Buddha teaches in the earliest discourses. He doesn't speak in terms of splitting up reality or experience in that way. So that kind of split-level model, and of course Buddhist philosophers have expended gallons of ink on trying to show how these two are not really different. They're one kind of thing. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, etc., etc., but all of that language, I feel, is actually rather unnecessary. We don't need to use that kind of what is, in a sense, a blatantly dualistic way of thinking. And the third thing I feel has to go is the notion of karma as a cosmogonic theory. In other words, karma, which means action, but of course it's taken on other associations in, in our popular discourse. Karma. It's your karma. Um, in other words, things are the way they are because of our actions committed uh, in previous lifetimes or earlier in this lifetime, and our experience is that which is uh, the result of our previous actions. And that is very much a standard Buddhist doctrine. And consequently, well, how we act now, how we behave now, is going to create the conditions for what will happen after our death and so forth. Now, I don't think it's a question uh, of somehow abandoning uh, these ancient doctrines and substituting them with uh, ideas that we draw from our uh, experiences of modernity and science. Um, if we go back to the uh, early canonical discourses, we find, or let's say I have found, on reading these texts, 
that a secular voice is actually already there. That um, one of the great richnesses of the Pali Canon is that it's not spoken in a single monotonous voice. In fact, it's full of all sorts of conflicts and contradictions. You get mythical language, you get rather sort of astute psychological language, um, you get an outline of a kind of social vision of how Indian society should be, you get stories, narratives, you get uh, philosophy, all of these particular styles of, of speaking and talking and describing things are found there. And what in fact is clearly the case is that each Buddhist tradition that has evolved has selected passages from these early canonical and in the case of the Zen and the Tibetan traditions uh, the Mahayana canonical texts and has taken those passages and those teachings that seem to speak to the conditions of people in let's say 8th century Tibet, 14th century Japan or whatever it might be and so what we're doing here is nothing new there's no Buddhist tradition that actually bases its teachings and doctrines on a total reading of the canon it's too big and the great the strength of the canon is precisely that it is such a great big baggy monster of different things and that's what enables um, you know new dialogues to occur and new uh, visions of how the Dharma could be to arise so what I do in my my studies is to try to refine my hearing so that I begin to pick up on the secular voice of the Buddha's own time or at least a time that is pretty close to that so for example if we look at the end of the Kalama Sutta the discourse given to the people of the Kalamas which is often cited in, in the West um, weirdly because it's a very minor text in, uh, in Theravada Buddhism but it's a striking text because it's kind of at odds with much uh, Buddhist orthodoxy. Um, this is the, the, the conclusion of the text. This is what the Buddha says. He says, When Kalamas, a noble disciple, is, has made his mind free of enmity, free of ill will, uncorrupted and pure, he wins certain assurances in this life. And the first two, the first assurance is this. If there is another world, and if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. That's the first assurance. Second assurance is this. If there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still, right here, in this very life, I live happy, free of enmity and ill will. Now, this passage is kind of shocking, because the Buddha is basically saying, if there is another life, or if there is not, there's no clear commitment to either. He's taking what I feel is close to an agnostic position 
on these questions. We are also probably aware of how the Buddha refused to answer certain metaphysical questions. And I think this is one of the most characteristic things of his teaching. Whether the universe has a beginning, whether it has an end, whether it's finite, whether it's infinite, whether mind and body are the same, or whether mind and body are different. Don't go there. And yet, every Buddhist tradition has gone there, and without exception, they have, dis- they have uh, come to the view that mind and body are different. You can't actually, I think, have a coherent uh, theory of reincarnation if you do not posit that mind is one thing and body is another. Otherwise, what is it that gets reborn? But the Buddha is saying, he's not giving an answer, he's not, not saying one or the other, he's not taking a position on, on that question, he's basically saying, leave that alone. It's not conducive to your practice of the path to pursue that kind of inquiry. And he also says, in the next of the unanswered questions, whether one is, after death, whether one is Uh, whether one exists after death does not exist after death both exists and doesn't exist after death or neither exists nor does not exist (laughs) he wants to close the door on that question (laughs) but of course Buddhist tradition has ignored the Buddha there and gone on to hold very clear positions uh, on on, on those topics and of course we do find throughout the canon, the Buddha speaking in terms of future lives and past lives. It's all there. So the point is, we have to, we don't have to, I have found it useful um, to pay heed to that, uh, what I call that secular voice that's already there, particularly in the earliest texts. Another passage which I feel is very Uh, central to uh, a secular vision of the Dhamma is in the parable of the city which we find in the Sanyutta Nikaya for those who want to know the reference it's 1265 where the Buddha says suppose monks a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path he would follow it and he would come to an ancient city a place inhabited by people in the past with parks and groves and ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister and say, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path, I followed it and came to an ancient (coughs) city. Renovate that city, Sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate the city and sometime later it would become successful and prosperous, filled with people, attain to growth and expansion. And then the Buddha says, I am like the man who wandered in the forest and followed, found the path and came to the ruins of an ancient city, etc. And he says that the path is the Eightfold Path, this way of life, which entails and encompasses the whole of our humanity, not just our spiritual bit. And the ancient city, he compares to the Four Noble Truths, and the law of conditioned arising. Now this is puzzling because 
It's very much a vision of creating a new kind of society in the world. That the Dhamma, the path, the truths, the law of conditioned arising, are the template for another kind of civilization or society or culture in this world. The Buddhist orthodoxy, when it describes the Eightfold Path, invariably describes it as the Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering. Here we have the Eightfold Path that leads to the Four Truths, which are refracted through the principle of conditionality. And remember that the Fourth Truth is the Eightfold Path, which leads to, you get the idea, it leads to the Four Truths, the Fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which in other words, he's describing here not a kind of a, a, a one-way track to nirvana and the cessation of suffering and not getting reborn in the, anymore in samsara, liberation, the unconditioned, the deathless. He's talking about um, basically a, a, a positive feedback loop, a process. Awakening um, is seen as something that is ongoing. There's not really any beginning or end. It's how we live in this world, how we can uh, engage with dukkha, with the suffering of the world, how we can let go of grasping or craving, how we can experience moments in which that grasping stops. We find the stillness of, of Nibbana, the stillness where we're not conditioned in our thoughts or our our acts by greed and hatred and delusion, which becomes the condition for a new way of life, the Eightfold Path. So the Four Truths, therefore, become uh, a sequence of tasks to be performed rather than truths to be believed or not believed. So again, I think... I mean, for many years I've heard the story about the man going in the forest and finding the path. And that's as much as I ever remember hearing. In fact, that's become a, a, quite an important image in Buddhism. And the Eightfold Path is, yes, that path, and all the Buddhas of the past have followed it, so what the Buddha's teaching is nothing new. It was only when I went back to look for the source of that image that I found it wasn't actually about a path at all. It was about a path that led to a city, and a city which would fallen into disrepair and the person then goes to the king or the powers of the day and says, let's rebuild this thing. It's a, it, again, it's an image of a community of, of, of people living uh, and working together to create another kind of society. And there you have it, right back in the Sanyuta Nikaya. Now, another example of this of this kind of secular voice uh, concerns the doctrine of karma. And again in the Sanyuta Nikaya, in Sanyuta Nikaya 3621, that's pages 1278 to 9 in Vikram Bodhi's translation, hidden away in the back of some great big thick book, and we come across the following dialogue. It's a dialogue with a man called Molya Sivaka which means Sivaka of the top knot. So some sort of long-haired ascetic type guy. And a Sivaka comes to the Buddha and he says, um, what does he say? He says, yes. He says, Mr. Gautama, 
There are some, this is what he's called, Bo Gautama, means Mr. Gautama. Mr. is a non-reverential term. Mr. Gautama, he says. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who, who hold a doctrine and view like this. Whatever a person experiences, whether it be pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful, all that is caused by actions done in the past. In other words, karma. Actions done in the past. What does, Master, what does Mr. Gautama say about this? <coughs> and this is the Buddha's reply. Some feelings, Sivaka, arise here originating from bile disorders. <laughs> um, and then he goes on and says, some feelings originate here from phlegm disorders, from wind disorders, from an imbalance of the three. Some feelings here arise from a change of climate which is something that's taken on another meaning altogether today. Some feelings arise produced by careless behaviour. Some feelings arise uh, which are caused by assault. In other words, pe other people doing stuff to us. And some result as the, uh, uh, some are produced as the result of our previous actions. Karma. Now how some feelings arise here originating from bile disorders, etc., one can know for oneself. And that is also something considered to be true in the world. Now when those ascetics and Brahmins hold a doctrine such as whatever a person experiences, all that is caused by actions committed in the past, they overshoot what one knows by oneself, and they overshoot what is considered to be true in the world. Therefore I say that is wrong on the part of those ascetics and Brahmins. Now this passage is particularly striking, at least it was for me, because I was taught in good faith by teachers I have great respect for that whatever a person experiences, be it pleasant, painful or neither, all that is caused by actions done in the past. That was orthodox Buddhist belief. And here the Buddha is asked that very question. And he says, no, it's not like that. Our experience comes out of a multiplicity of conditions and causes, some of which, yes, are the actions you've done in the past. But the first four, when it's this bile, phlegm, wind business, <laughs> um, that has to do, that's a reference to Ayurvedic medicine. And even modern Tibetan medicine today uh, is based on the idea that in the body there are three humours, bile, phlegm, and wind. And health is when those three humours are in harmony, and ill health is when the humours fall out of harmony. Mm -hmm. So you have wind diseases, phlegm diseases, bile diseases, and medication, usually herbal treatments and so on, is about uh, correcting the imbalance in the humours. So what he's basically saying is a lot of what we experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, is actually the state of our health, the state of our bodies. Now wind, remember, the wind humour uh, in Tibetan medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, also refers to mental disorders as well. It's a, 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 mental illness is said to be an imbalance of the humour of wind. So a great deal of our experience is the consequence of our of our physical organism and then he has 
careless behavior, climate, assault, and so on, <coughs> external conditions. And finally, he acknowledges, which is again somewhat self-evident, that also our experiences are caused by things we have done and thought and said in the past. But he refuses, in fact, he, to, to, to narrow it all down to karma. And the other thing that is interesting is that he says, we, this is something we can know for ourselves. Or if we don't know it personally, it's something that the wise people of the world will, have, will be able to explain to us, doctors and so on. So this is a very uh, this-worldly account of human experience. Now I'm running out of time to speak for a little bit longer. In some ways, therefore, I think the, the challenge that faces us, or at least faces those of us who are concerned to somehow articulate and understand and present the Buddha's teaching in this world, is that we, in some respects, I think, have to go back to the beginning and start again. I'm not convinced that it's a question of tinkering and modifying uh, Asian Buddhist doctrinal views and beliefs. Uh, some of them will be more, um, uh, as it were, applicable to our condition than others. But at some level, I think we have to go back to the very core uh, principles that underpin uh, the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching and rethink them, both in the light of these earliest source texts, but also in the light of our contemporary world picture, <coughs> that of, of modernity. Um, and out of an interaction between the two, then may emerge over time, and it's not going to happen overnight, but probably only over generations, that some new way of um, understanding, thinking about, and practicing the Dharma might emerge, just as it has done in the past. What, what, to me, one of the great uh, strengths of, of Buddhism is how it has allowed um, considerable diversity between its different traditions to flourish. So that the, you know, the, the Buddhism of Tibet is very different from that of Japan, which is very different to that you'll find in Burma or Sri Lanka. And traditional Buddhists will often say, well, the reason you know, these different schools are, are different is because my, my particular one is right and the other one is wrong. <laughs> but I think it's very difficult for us to, to look at it that way anymore. I think our natural response to explaining how Tibetan Buddhism is different from Japanese Buddhism is not by saying, well, actually, Japanese Buddhism has got it right. The Tibetans are just a bunch of shamans or something. But actually, to say, well, they have arisen under different historical conditions. They have arisen to respond to different human needs at different times and different cultures. That's why they're different. To us, that's almost obvious. But it's obvious because uh, modern uh, education, especially in the last 100 or 200 years, has been committed to the idea of historical consciousness. In other words, we understand the differences and diversity of things, events in the world is due to different sets of circumstances that have given rise to them. 
Now this again fits very neatly with the Buddhist emphasis on conditioned arising or dependent origination. It seems to be a wonderful illustration of this key principle uh, that underpins the Dhamma. I'm going to stop there. Yes, first question. <coughs> Sir, my brother, who is also, also a thoughtful person, even though he's not as, as uh, scholarly as yourself, uh, once told me recently that he's not a Buddhist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or he wouldn't claim to be a Buddhist. And his reason, although I went to ignore with him, is that he finds uh, both the teaching and the practice to passive. Uh-huh. That he wishes uh, for the... Anyway, that's what he said. That's what he said. Yeah. I'm wondering whether um, you would feel personally justified um, or comfortable with, uh, for instance, giving up the idea of reincarnation if you had not found sources. I was trained in the law and mm-hmm. the, this business about the, the Supreme Court and how it is interpreted now, this is the same story about modernity and whether guns mm-hmm. now are the same as men and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered if, if you hadn't found the sources for the justifying a modern belief, would you have felt as easy about it or would you have had to say, well, I'm not a Buddhist? Well, I'll give you my own story. Um, when, I, when I was training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk in the Gelugpa school, which is one of the scholarly forms of Buddhism, um, I wasn't being trained in esoteric Vajrayana practices and mandalas and mantras and all that stuff, although we did a little of that on the side. <laughs> I was actually being trained in logic and epistemology and philosophy primarily. And part of the training consisted in um, improving logically and rationally uh, the doctrine of, of reincarnation. That's, that was a, a key thing to achieve. Um, somewhat like in the medieval times the monks in the mon- Christian monasteries would try to prove the existence of God. It's the same kind of mindset. And I basically when we came to the proof for reincarnation it was kind of obvious that it wasn't a proof at all. Um, it was a very weak argument really. <laughs> And um, what it became clear then is that uh, you know reason is all will always be subordinate in the end to faith. You know we can't prove it, or here is a proof. But even by the criteria of um, Buddhist logic itself, it doesn't work as a proof. So that was very disappointing. And so, but I was then sort of struck with this. Um, I was stuck really here. You know, in order to practice the Dharma as I was being taught I had to believe these things in order to be a public representative of this tradition you know shaven head and robes and all that kind of stuff I couldn't in all in good faith you know tell people things about the Dharma that I didn't believe myself what I finally the way I resolved this and this was a great inner struggle actually was at one point I realized that even if I knew that there was no reincarnation or rebirth or anything, that would not have any difference whatsoever on my commitment to this practice, to meditation, to the ethics, to the philosophy. (coughs) It it was all, in a sense, rendered academic. I wasn't practicing the Dharma in all because of my views about what happens after death. 
That was purely theoretical. So that was really, I feel, the greatest confirmation of my commitment to the practice. And in that respect, in a strange way, that struggle, in a, in a way, confirmed or deepened my commitment to being a Buddhist, if you like. That was only further, in a sense, reinforced when I came to you know, teach and, and write and so on by finding the sorts of passages that I found in these texts. I find it quite, I find it rather sad, actually, that someone would feel that Buddhism is rather passive. Unfortunately, though, in certain Buddhist traditions, that is kind of the way it's presented, is that the idea is to to get off the cycle of birth and death, to become detached and removed from the experiences of life, to the monk or the, the arhant becomes the ideal. And it is, I feel, a, a way of life that I, I can't embrace myself. I can't identify with that particular take on Buddhism. And I do think it's a consequence of Buddhism's deep commitment historically to the Indian renunciant tradition. And that is what I feel has to be let go of. That whole identification of the Dharma with the Indian renunciant tradition and the cosmological worldview of that time. Once you let that go, the practice opens up not just as proficiency in meditation and, and so on, but as the realization of the Eightfold Path, which is you know, thinking, speaking, acting, working. It's not just about meditating at all. And if you think of the parable of the city, it's about the attempt to create another kind of society in this world. If you think of the four truths, which actually are not truths, but tasks, it's about responding authentically to the suffering of the world trying to respond to that without being conditioned by your own fears and desires and hatreds, but responding out of love and compassion as an ongoing process that has no beginning or end and doesn't aim at some kind of nibbanic perfection. Yes? What does the word Pali mean? <laughs> the word Pali actually means text. The, 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 uh, the word in Pali for Pali is, is Pali Basya means the language of the texts. So the word Pali means text. It's not actually the name of a language. It's come to be known as a language, but it's actually the language of the texts. In other words, the language of what was written down in about the first century BC, which, if we go into... You know what is that language? It's a kind of um, amalgam of um, of colloquial spoken languages that were spoken at the Buddha's time. The Buddha didn't speak teach in Sanskrit, although Sanskrit was the classical language of the priestly caste in India at the Buddha's time. He spoke what are called prakrits, which means um, natural languages, um, idi idiomatic, spoken languages, a bit like <coughs> the difference between Italian and Latin. And what happened is that after the Buddha's death, then his teachings were remembered in the probably Magadhi, which is the spoken language of Magadha, 
But as the monks who remembered these teachings uh, traveled uh, or the, were shifted across to different parts of India, the, uh, they kind of forgot the ancient language of Magadha and inflections of other spoken languages of India, what are called mid-Indo-Aryan Prakrits, began to influence some of the words and the grammatical formations. And at the same time, the monks wanted their religious or their sacred language to be a bit more like Sanskrit. So, as Richard Gombrich says, he's a great, he's a professor of Sanskrit in Oxford, he said they tarted it up a bit. <laughs> so, so, the language of the texts is that, and we call it Pali. But nobody actually ever spoke in that way. Uh, the Buddha didn't speak uh, in that language, although Theravada tradition says he does. But modern scholarship, but no, it, would have been, it would have been something close. It would have been something close to that. Uh, but modern scholarship can now show us how it's a kind of a, it, it's evolved over about three or four hundred years and then finds its sort of final form uh, once it gets written down in Sri Lanka. And that's kind of how it's being preserved up until today. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm just such a um, thoroughgoing secularist in such a secular culture, or maybe I'm just um, such a thoroughgoing Theravadan, uh-huh. that I don't really see what the, the fuss is about or what the problem is, because I've so long relied so much on... Uh, the Kalama Sutta, uh-huh. in which the Buddha says so clearly that what we should be looking for is whether if something, a belief, um, ends, tends to end suffering or increase happiness. Uh-huh. And um, that seems such a key teaching that to insist on any kind of doctrine seems so obviously going against that teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Noble Eightfold Path, also, the it tends toward the ending of suffering, not necessarily going to some other realm, as I see it. End of suffering in this lifetime. Yeah, well, that's it, you see. You are a secular Buddhist and a true believer. <laughs> 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 but the, um, That's what we produce here, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you see, in, ma- in many ways, um, particularly in the Vipassana community, and this might help explain why they've adopted someone like me, <laughs> is that um, that's kind of how it's... Buddhism is already becoming secular. You don't need... To, it's not some project for the future. It's already yeah. happening. Yeah. It's already taking place. And... Um, Someone once said that uh, though those of us who, as it were, write about this become the public <coughs> intellectuals for um, that particular spin on Buddhism. Now, it, but on the other hand, although you don't see what the fuss is in what I'm saying, I can assure you there are plenty of others who do. <laughs> <laughs> Including some other senior um, monastics and uh, scholars within Theravada Buddhism. So um, we have to be careful that it's true, the Kalama Sutta has become for us a core text, a core authority. But it never was, it wasn't in the past mm-hmm. at all. In fact, it's, again, it was tucked away in the Anguttara Nikaya somewhere. 
And it was only when the, uh, the, 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 the first Western scholars uh, stumbled across this text, this would have been the 19th century, they said, wow. And then they, the first, one of the first editions of it, it was published as the Buddha's Charter of Free Inquiry. <laughs> you see, uh, by some American scholar. In other words, saying he resonated with it in the way that you do, in the way I do. But that wasn't uh, a text that had that authority or that centrality or was even known about. Well, but it seems only natural that because it would be so undermining a religious hierarchy that it would be stuffed away for hundreds of years. I agree with you. Yes, I, I, I agree. Obviously, I do, you see. Now, I agree with you. I feel that's probably an explanation that any orthodoxy in any religion, in any tradition, will seek to privilege the text that supports its views. I mean, that's obvious. We, we do the same. We mustn't think we're doing anything different. We privileged a different bunch of texts. But the great thing about uh, Buddhism is that it has sufficient variety in its source materials to allow uh, another stories about itself to emerge. Yeah. Uh, first off, thanks very much for coming to visit our sign. It's a real pleasure to have you here. And I wanted to ask about the relationship between and what I'm thinking of as gnosis and authority. Gnosis. Wisdom. Gnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's kind of Tibetan when you say it that way. <laughs> um, so you mentioned agnostic a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in terms of you know, karma and understanding the effects of karma, you can understand that directly. That's one of the things the Buddha said. I am now Gnostic with respect to Dhamma and the Paramitas. I've experienced that myself. But my gnosis needed a little tuning. Mm-hmm. And what the tuning came from was authority in some mm-hmm. sense. That, you know, I believe what those texts said. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like it seems like we all kind of need that at some point. That we need some reinforcement, whether mm-hmm. it comes from ancient teachings or whatever. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because it it seems like that's part of the heart of secularism is how do you embrace authority but not be completely driven by it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, It it will be going way too far to to somehow abandon any notion of authority and even in a a secular tradition like Western philosophy, for example, you have authority figures, going back to Plato and Aristotle and Kant and uh, Nietzsche and whoever it might be, that as human beings living uh, as part of a society with its history, then part of our whole makeup um, around what we regard as, as, as good, as valuable, um, as true, um, is founded not just on our own personal experience. I mean, that would end up with a kind of solipsism. My truth is my truth, and Hitler's truth is Hitler's truth, and that's okay. No, we're not going to do that. We, we, we need to appeal, as it were, to some uh, lineage of ideas or, or, or texts that somehow embody and also challenge us to come to uh, our own peculiar relationship with them. Um, I think a way, one way to look at this is how the Buddha describes the teacher, the Kalyanamita, the good friend. 
and he describes the good friend the teacher as the one who leads you into the eightfold path now that good friend could be a teacher a flesh and blood person who you respect who seems to embody values that you aspire to and that person becomes an authority for you and the chances are that that teacher will also embody a, a, a tradition or a lineage that goes back to the Buddha or to Dogen or Tsongkhapa, whoever it might, might be. So it's a whole, <coughs> uh, a whole collection of authorities. But the purpose of the teacher is to make you autonomous in your practice. And there's a term that you find in Pali, um, aparapachaya, which means not dependent on others. That the person who has entered the stream, who's entered the Eightfold Path, for whom that path has become their own, which is gnosis, you, you, you don't practice because somebody's telling you to do so. You're practicing because you have internalized certain insights and understandings. And that that way of life has now become almost second nature to you. It's become your own. When it becomes your own, you become autonomous of others in the Buddha's teaching. You become independent. Now this is again an idea that's not strongly emphasized in most religious traditions. Because they don't, they're not in the business of making people independent. They actually need people to be very dependent in order for the thing to survive. And, um, so the... Uh, I find there's a very uh, useful tension between um, valuing autonomy and at the same time having the humility to recognize the authority of those who are wiser and maybe more intelligent, maybe more experienced than yourself. I think it also uh, asks us to think what we mean as Sangha. I mean, if, if the Buddha is valuing independence of others in the teaching. How does that constitute, how do such persons constitute a community? A community, therefore, a Sangha, uh, and remember the Buddha defines Sangha as anyone who has entered the stream, entered the Eightfold Path, not monks and nuns and so on. It's not an institutional concept, it's an experiential, Gnostic concept, if you wish. And uh, therefore, a Sangha, a community, would be a network of friendships within which each person um, supports each other person in becoming individuated, autonomous, uh, in cultivating their own insights, and likewise that person supports the others. Uh, a community, therefore, is a, um, uh, a, f a network of friendships uh, which are mutually supportive. Um, of each member rather than a collective this is a distinction I picked up from Martin Buber a collective is uh, defined as a, as a community if you wish of people who are expected to toe the same party line to believe the same things to conform to certain norms and any, kind, any expression of individual, individuality either in your morals or in your beliefs or your views is basically going to lead to exclusion and we see this in all religions 
and we see it in politics too, of course, that what um, political parties and what religious institutions often uh, want is uh, agreement, conformity, and um, a commitment to certain dogmas, and at the, at the expense of somehow sacrificing your own individuality. I don't think that's what the Buddha had in mind at all. But Buddhism often does, I'm afraid. Humility is a great word. I, was just, I just heard something today. The, the root word of that is humus, which is earth. So it's, oh, really? it's grounding. Grounded, good. Oh, yeah. that's very helpful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Groundedness. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> I'm curious if you've run across any uh, doctrine that also needs to be let go of relating to the imbalance in the masculine and feminine. Um, well, again, I think, I mean, this is, a, a, again, I think, a, a question very much of our seculum, of our time. We have to remember that uh, the Buddha was probably the first religious, if we can use that word, teacher, to have given uh, to women the same potential as men. In other words, women could achieve exactly the same level of liberation, insight, as men. He was probably the first person in human history to institute an order of women nuns. Nonetheless, the canon does suggest a certain patriarchal bias, um, often quite strongly, in fact. And, of course, it's tempting to say, well, that must have been sort of added on later by now. It may have been. I'd quite like to believe that. There are these eight... Nuns have to take eight additional precepts, one of which, the first of which is that a nun of 100 years standing has to pay reverence to a male novice of one day standing. Now, modern scholarship has shown, I think fairly convincingly, that these were... Um, overlays of a later period in which the male monks wish to affirm their authority over the nun. Um, but you could also, I think, have you could, I feel, also recognise that any revolutionary or reformer in a given time in history does not have a carte blanche to do what they want. They have to operate within the realm of what is possible, given the fact that they require the support of you know, you know kings and princes and people to keep the thing going it's always going to be a bit of a compromise so that could have been a compromise that the early community had to enter into but I do think that the, the key here even though Buddhist, the history of Buddhist institutions in a sense fails to realise it is the equality between men and women in terms of the capacity to realise the goals of the tradition. That's very clear. Yeah. Um, by the way, thank you. I read your book, uh, The uh, Confessions of a Buddhist, Buddhist Atheist, uh-huh. and I was very drawn to it specifically by the title. Oh, good. Um, my personal journey is included. Uh, I have a tremendous distrust of form. Mm and uh, tradition. So it's really odd to me that I should be attracted to something that has even a, a greater tradition mm-hmm. and, a, and, and a deeper <coughs> tradition than what I was raised with, which was Christianity, which mm-hmm. came a few hundred years later. 
right? Mm. Um, but um, this is the question I have. To me, in your book, and the way I see what I've read of what the Buddha was saying, was he said, be your own authority. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Mm-hmm. Which was the same commandment mm-hmm. as far as I can see. So, that being true, and if you agree with that, mm-hmm. then was the Buddhist, Buddha the first anarchist, according to the classic <laughs> <laughs> And, um, is, and if that's the case, is Buddhism as taught by the Buddha, mm. not by the later monks, but by the Buddha, in conflict with anarchy? Well, if we take, I mean, anarchy as 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 because uh, it's self-organized. Yeah, anarchy is, is there is no authority really. There's no. It's a, a non-authoritarian. It's a vision of society in which people are trusted to be able to organize their affairs independently of any governing body, any, any, kind, of, any kind of body. I like to think that's the kind of vision the Buddha had. And there are, there's, a very, there's a, quite a clear indication of this. The Buddha refused to appoint a successor. And um, he says um, very famously to Ananda, this comes at the end of my book actually, he says very clearly to Ananda, his attendant, before he dies, he says, do not think that after I am dead you will have no teacher. The Dharma will be your teacher. Yeah. Okay. And um, when Devadatta, his cousin, tries to take over the community in a kind of coup, um, <laughs> the Buddha says, Devadatta, I would not even appoint Sariputta or Moggallana, my two chief followers, as my successor, let alone a lick spittle like oh. <laughs> <laughs> Straight from the palm? Straight from the palm, yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, I.B. Uh, Horner and uh, Nyana Moli translate that term as gob of spit. <laughs> K.R. Norman, who's probably the greatest authority on mid-Indo-Aryan practice, has compared it with a Chinese text that makes it clear that it's probably lick spittle, <laughs> meaning a toady. Who was Devadatta was a toady to the local king, actually. Ah. So in a sense, Devadatta's attempt to take over the Sangha was a, also a political attempt mm-hmm. by the son of King Bimbisara to take over the state. And the Buddha rejects both. Mm-hmm. So if you think of his uh, legacy as the Dhamma, the Dhamma means the law, actually. In other words, he wants his community to be governed not by an authority figure, but by a, 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 a commitment to a certain set of abstract mm-hmm. ideals and practices <coughs> and, uh, and ethical values um, that will regulate the life of the community. So in that sense, it's anarchic. Thank you. And I think we have to... Stop. Here, Judith, one last question. You know, I, I uh, have such enormous um, respect for your work. I but do. I wonder... Um, <laughs> uh, yes, okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, I wonder in the diversity of this um, secular Buddhism, mm-hmm. if there's room for a devoted, uh, ordained person who's uh, devoted to asking questions, not embodying the doctrine. 
Yeah, I do. I, I'm my. <coughs> I, I have no problem with uh, ordination and monasticism at all. Um, I find it gets problematic when it becomes a basis for claiming authority over others. Mm. But as a training, um, and also as a vocation, I think it is an integral part of the sort of community that uh, the Buddha envisioned. I mean, when the Buddha described the, the, the Sangha, he described it as including monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. And what constituted being part of the Sangha was not your role, but your basically your, your taking of refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. In other words, you're committing your life to the realization of those core values, and you're being part of the stream of the of the path. And uh, what I think may occur, and perhaps is occurring, um, in a secularization process is a greater distribution and equality of authority amongst monks and lay people, uh, but not a rejection of the value of monastic or, or, or <coughs> monastic training. Uh, I would like to envision, and this is hopelessly idealistic, um, is that people in our society would have the option rather than, say, going to university and training for some sort of uh, career in the world, to have the option to spend the same amount of time or longer in a monastic uh, environment, uh, training to be teachers, uh, training to be meditation instructors, um, which I think is a, something we desperately need in our world, are, are the trainings in these inner disciplines. And such a body of... Uh, Practitioners may only do this for five or seven years, whatever. Um, but there would, of course, that would necessitate a body of people, ordained people, who would, as it were, be the frame, would provide the framework and the skills uh, for that sort of training. And I think that's again, it's happening in a way. I mean, the Japanese ordinations, of which obviously you are part, do not insist on celibacy. In fact. Japan never really took to the vineyard. Um, so again, we don't have to think of it in, in strict terms of uh, uh, classical Indian renunciant uh, uh, forms. Um, but I do think that that would, uh, I, I think it would, be, it would be a very dangerous thing to somehow just drop that. I'm going to stop now, I'm afraid. It's when are you coming time. back? When am I coming back? <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer that question. Uh, soon. Soon. Well, I'm afraid it's not soon. <laughs> um, I won't be back in the West Coast of America probably till 2014. Oh. Wow. <laughs> Where else can we find you? You can find me on my website. <laughs> and uh, we teach mainly in Europe, but we also teach in Australia. Uh, we'll be going to South Africa next year. Uh, we sometimes go to Mexico. And in 2013, I'm taking a sabbatical. That's otherwise where I would normally come in 2013. In two years. So the plan is to come back uh, in 2014. Thank you. It's been very lovely talking to you. I hope you flourish in your lives. And... Um, I'm being told by I have to dedicate the merit. So, <laughs> so let's just spend a, a few quiet moments uh, wishing that 
all that we may have learned or experienced this evening in the meditation, in our reflections, that this be transformed into words and acts that bring benefit to others. Mm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.